KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. How people in Tijuana are impacted by the threat of cartel violence. People in Tijuana, their takeaway is that the cartels demonstrated that if they want to, they can shut the city down. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. What's behind UC San Diego cutting admissions? We've had this huge surge in applications, but the UC system hasn't been physically growing as fast as you would want to keep up with it all. And a look at new development plans for Mira Mesa plus a story of resilience from a local author. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The San Diego-Tijuana border region has returned to a sense of calm after a tumultuous weekend which saw businesses shut and residents staying in their homes due to drug cartel threats. Though the weekend resulted in very little violence, the cartel seemed to succeed in instilling fear across Tijuana and other nearby border cities. Here to tell us more is KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, welcome back to Midday Edition. Hello, Jade. So you have covered violence in the border region before, but you note this weekend's events were something different. How was this different? Yeah, that, that's right, Jade. It, it, it's different in that it, it seems performative. And I don't know if that's the right term for it, but but it's a show. It, it was a show of force. And I, I hesitate to call it violence. I mean, it was violent, right? It was, it was property damage. Vehicles were burned and it disrupted the city. Um, but for a city known for Tijuana, a city known for, for murder, the, no one died. So, so it's kind of this strange feeling that that everyone's on Friday, everyone was afraid and on lockdown and terrified, but it was a relatively nonviolent event, if, if that makes any sense. Mm. And you spoke with Martin, who is a resident of Tijuana. Here's a little of what he had to say. Quisieron meterle miedo. No, bueno, más bien lo lograron. Le metieron miedo a la población. Me quedé en la casa y este, ya no salí. You know, as you just heard there, he was scared to leave his house this weekend. Is that similar to what you heard from others in Tijuana? It is. I mean, he was mostly afraid to leave the house Friday night and Saturday during the day. But by Sunday and by Monday, they're still afraid. A lot of people in Tijuana are still kind of uncertain of what the situation will be this week. But they have to return to work and 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 leave the house. They they can't just stay shuttered in forever. So so on Monday when I went down there, most of the businesses were open, but they were they, they were shaken. You could tell that this was different than what they've experienced in the past. And who else did you speak with in Tijuana? Well, I spoke to to this woman who owns a restaurant by Avenida Revolución, um, and she actually she shut down Friday night as soon as she saw a bus on fire near her 
her restaurant. And at the time she was seeing on social media and on the radio that there were reports of businesses being burnt down. So when she left Friday, she wasn't sure if she was ever going to see her her business again. Uh, she came back Saturday, was on the fence about opening and was just still scared Saturday morning. She said she went back. She's in a pretty good location, usually a lot of foot traffic, a lot of vehicle traffic, but she just said it was deserted on Saturday morning and it just felt spooky for her to to be there and open it. Hmm. Have you heard fears from businesses that the threat of violence will hurt business in the border region? Unclear, like what the long-term effects of this will be, right? I mean, the you know Tijuana is used to to violence. It, it's a city known for homicides, like I said. So, so the, they've learned to adapt. I think the fear is, or the concern is, if these public show of force acts continue, right? Because they did shut down the city. I mean, on Friday night, public transportation was shut off. People were stranded. Taxis weren't picking people up. Down in Ensenada, they shut down the port so a cruise couldn't dock over there. Uh, businesses were shut down. I know we heard from Kitty about the impact on this side of the border the day after. I think that's more of what they're worried about, not so much the the day today. I mean, because like I said, right, these, unfortunately, Tijuana and the businesses and the residents have had to get used to living with violence for for decades now. As you've reported, there was very little violence that occurred this weekend in Tijuana, though there was in Juarez, another border city in Mexico. Why was the situation uh, in Tijuana different, you think? Honestly, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, Juarez also has a history of violence and and, and a really gruesome history, specifically with cartel violence. And I know just through Texas, um, the Texas border seems to be a lot more violent than the California border, at least in the context of, of migrants and refugees and asylum seekers. But honestly, I look, I'm, I'm not an expert on violence or, or cartels, so I wouldn't be able to tell you why it was bloodier in Juarez than it was here in Tijuana. Hmm. Now, on the other side of the border, KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado reported on how businesses on the U.S. side are reacting to this weekend's events. We spoke to her earlier today, and she said, Uh, What stood out to her most was how no one she spoke to wanted to identify themselves due to fear. Have you found that as well in Tijuana? Yeah, I I have. I mean, it's fairly common, particularly when when you're working with migrant populations. But in the wake of what happened Friday, I think you can kind of understand, right? In some cases, people are more more afraid of the cartel than, than they have faith in the government to protect them from the cartel. In some neighborhoods, they view the cartel as sort of the de facto authority in that area. So they, they don't want to upset anyone. There have been in Tijuana recently uh, murders of people who publicly criticize the cartel or speak out against it. So I do understand why people are are very, very hesitant to, to attach their name to any comments, even if they're non-critical or indirectly critical of the cartel. What do you think it will take for people to feel secure again after these events? I think time will tell, right? I mean, Tijuana responded by deploying, I think it was 3,000 military personnel and 2,000 police officers. Uh, Now, to be clear, a lot of the military had already been there. There's been Mexican military stationed in Tijuana for months now in response to rising homicide rates. So it's not particularly new, but, but it's helpful. I think just time. Let's see how how the situation 
unfolds. Let's see if more of these days happen. I think more than anything, people in Tijuana, their takeaway is that the cartels demonstrated that if they want to, they can shut the city down and they hope it doesn't happen again. And they're not sure what to do in order to, to make that happen again, right? I think the ball is kind of in the government's court right now and everyone's just in a wait and see phase right now. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you. Thank you, Jade. UC San Diego is cutting admission offers for the next school year by more than 9,000 students. Most of the admissions reductions affect out-of-state and foreign students, but the school also pared down about 1,600 California freshman slots. The reductions come at a time when UC San Diego, as well as most other UC campuses, are being strained by higher enrollment and facing shortages of school housing. Yet, the actual number of students may still increase this year if more of the freshmen accepted actually decide to attend UCSD. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. Gary, welcome. Hi, Maureen. So UC San Diego and other UC campuses are facing competing priorities these days. They're being urged to increase enrollment of California students while their housing situations are kind of bursting at the seams. Is that why this cutback of admission offers is taking place? That has a lot to do with it. This is a good news, bad news story. Over the uh, past couple of decades, the number of California high school students who graduated increased very significantly. And the number of those high school graduates who qualified for admission to the University of California system also went up a lot. At the same time, uh, the state's population grew. So you had a higher, larger growing pool of people who could uh, get into the UC system. At the same time, you'll remember like two years ago that the UC system dropped the requirement of the ACT and the SAT scores, and that encouraged even more people to apply. So you have this huge tidal wave of students applying to the UC campuses. But on the downside, over most of the past 20 years, the UC system budget didn't grow. In fact, uh, taxpayers in general uh, asked that it be cut. Um, That means that you've had this huge surge in applications, but the UC system hasn't been physically growing as fast as you would want to keep up with it all. It's trying to do it now in places like uh, UC San Diego, which is growing by gangbusters. It's incredible what's going on there, but they just can't fully keep up with it. So what we're seeing now is a cut in the number of overall um, admissions offers. So UC San Diego actually enrolled more students last year than ever before. Isn't that right? Absolutely. They had just under 43,000 students. Last year, they added 2,400 students almost. Uh, That was way above what they expected. All campuses, Maureen, have what's called a yield problem. You, you take an educated guess at what your yield will be. You make a number of offers and a certain number enroll, and you try to guess what that is. But if you're off by 1%, uh, you can be off by 1,000 students. So there have been a lot of times in, in the recent past where UC San Diego simply got it wrong, and they ended up with a lot more students than forecasts, and that happened last year. It may end up happening again this year, you know, the thing about admissions is you really don't know, don't know what the numbers are going to be until people actually show up at the door. And the numbers show that historically UC San Diego has not been the first choice of a lot of students who do get admission offers. Is that right? That is right. Um, and this is according to UC San Diego students. Every year they do a freshman survey. They ask a ton of questions. 
one of those questions is, was this your first uh, college of choice? Uh, last year, only 29% said yes. Now, that doesn't mean that they think this is a bad school. It, uh, by and large, means that the UC system gets a lot of really talented kids that are applying for all the schools. And you can apply to all the UCs at once rather than to, to just one at a time. So kids throw out a tremendous number of applications. And, you know, this may not be their first choice, even though they don't feel heartbroken if that's where they end up. Now, this year, 131,000 students applied to UCSD, and only about 31,000 were accepted. Is that a low admission rate for the school? That sure is. So um, this year, roughly 24% of um, people who applied for admission to UC San Diego were accepted, 24%. Last year, it was 34%. I talked to a student from um, UC San Diego last night who was in student government, and he was you know, he's absolutely floored by that drop. That's a big time drop. Um, so it's become harder at this point to get into UC San Diego. Now, you've reported on the building boom at UC San Diego as the school struggles to build housing for students. What's happening with housing at other UC campuses? Well, a lot of those campuses have, have had similar problems. You may have read, for example, that UCLA went on quite an expansion drive to add a lot more housing and some of that housing opens this fall. So they saw what the problem was and they're doing something about it. Now, last year, 3,100 students at UC San Diego got on wait lists because there wasn't enough housing. That got whittled down, but what it uh, primarily did is push people into the um, open housing market, which was horrible. Now this year, the university, UC San Diego has a bit more housing, but it's likely to have more students as well. They notified students earlier that there was going to be a problem. And that pushed prospective students into the market. Like uh, there's like a ton of kids looking around La Jolla and Claremont and Pacific Beach uh, to try to find housing. That story hasn't been fully told yet because school is not in session. But I think what we're going to hear is that all these students came back and they're really struggling because the cost of rents around San Diego has done nothing but rise. Now, with all this going on, the UC system is being pressured to push enrollment growth. What do some members of the Board of Regents want to see? Well, I had a very long talk with Rich Lieb of San Diego. He's chair of the UC Board of Regents. He wants to see massive expansion. When I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, he says, you know, we're having a change of thought here. We think the figure should be 30,000 to 33,000. So expanding even more, which puts even more pressure on the system to build, which, you know, takes them back to the legislature and to the governor to say, give us more money. Now, the governor and the lawmakers seem like they are willing to do that based on things that they did over the past year. But that's going to mean an enormous expansion still. And the chancellor at UC San Diego did something that was unexpected and remarkable. So he talked about roughly doubling the number of beds on that campus, which would make it one of the largest residential campuses in America. He also talked about the fact that some of that housing might be built along uh, the blue line uh, in South County because the, the university is trying to do more and more to reach out to students down in South County. Now that the blue line links all the way to the border up into La Jolla, that can be done. And uh, the chancellor is kind of looking at the possibility of a satellite campus. He has not committed to anything, but Lieb uh, told the Union Tribune, you know what, it wouldn't bother me to see UC San Diego expand to Chula Vista 
and have roughly 10,000 students in fairly short order. That is a thunderbolt to the people in South County because they've wanted a university uh, for 30 years. And there is some that that kind of thing could happen because Chula Vista has almost 400 acres of open land for available for universities. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. And Gary, thanks a lot. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. A year ago today, the Caldor Fire burned through the small town of Grizzly Flats in Northern California. The fire destroyed more than 400 homes, about two-thirds of the community. A new investigation from CAP Radio and the California Newsroom predicted for decades a wildfire could devastate Grizzly Flats. But its plan to protect the town didn't get done. Scott Rod reports. Mark Almer is one of the lucky ones. His home is still standing, but his view is now mostly scorched trees and empty foundations. It's uh, kind of lonely around here now. Nearly two decades ago, the U.S. Forest Service gave a presentation showing how wildfire could level Grizzly Flats, and they modeled a fire that mirrored what happened last year. They showed a fire that could potentially wipe out our community within 24 hours. It wasn't 24 hours, but it was close in the Caldor Fire. So Elmer, a retired fire inspector, got to work. He helped create a volunteer group of residents called the Grizzly Flats Fire Safe Council. They raised money through community barbecues and wine tastings. They wrote grants. All told, they tackled nearly $2 million worth of fire prevention projects. The Forest Service, meanwhile, removed some excess trees and brush, but most of it was miles from town. It wasn't until 10 years after the community meeting that the agency announced a plan to protect Grizzly Flats, called the Trestle Project. It promised to reduce fuels in overgrown forests and set prescribed fires on 15,000 acres around the community. Fire ecologists say this work is essential to reducing catastrophic wildfires, and we don't have any time to waste. But the history of the Forest Service in the time that we lived there was that everything took forever. Kathy Melvin was a member of the Fire Safe Council. She lost her home of four decades in the Caldor Fire. It would take years and years and years for anything to get done. The Forest Service originally said it would finish the Trestle Project by 2020. The agency later pushed back the date by about a decade. Our investigation found they finished only 14 percent of the planned work before the Caldor Fire, which grew to one of the most destructive blazes in state history. Forest Service officials say they faced a series of hurdles in getting the work done. Pushback from environmental groups, staff shortages, and climate change, which has reduced opportunities to set prescribed burns. But the biggest problem, they say, was money. You know, that's not make any bones about this. We did not have the funding to do the level of work that needs to be done out there. Randy Moore is chief of the U.S. Forest Service. He's optimistic that billions of dollars recently allocated by Congress will jumpstart this work. He declined to weigh in on whether completing the Trestle Project would have protected Grizzly Flats. I, I, I'm not really sure, um, you know, why we keep talking about that question. Others had a lot to say. 
We spoke to a dozen sources, including wildfire experts, career firefighters, residents, and former Forest Service officials, who believe Grizzly Flats would have stood a better chance of surviving the fire if the Forest Service had finished the trestle project. That includes retired district ranger Dwayne Nelson, one of the project's key architects. I think there would have been a very high probability that Grizzly Flat would not have burned in the Caldor Fire. It could have meant survival. Last year, he watched as the Caldor Fire consumed his former district. I'm not going to say I felt guilt, but what I did feel was remorse. Nelson says he's proud of the plan his team laid out to protect Grizzly Flats, and proud of the work that had gotten done. But he says there was still plenty left to do when the Caldor Fire devastated this small community. That was Scott Rod reporting for The California Report. One of San Diego's most car-dependent neighborhoods could one day be a beacon of pedestrian-friendly urban design. That's according to a recently unveiled plan for San Diego's Mira Mesa neighborhood. The changes, first reported by the San Diego Union-Tribune, are set to be considered by the city council this fall and could drastically change the layout of an area that many say is a textbook example of outdated urban design. Joining me now with more details of the plan is Jeff Stevens, Chairman of the Mira Mesa Community Planning Group. Jeff, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. Let's address the elephant in the room first. Mira Mesa is flanked by highways and far from the city's core. How realistic do you think it is to turn this area into a pedestrian-centric neighborhood? So the idea is to redevelop certain areas where there's shopping malls, where there's industrial businesses, and to make those pedestrian-friendly. There are a few other pedestrian improvements along the major roads, but I think to say it's turning the whole community into a pedestrian-friendly area is a, is a bit of an overstatement. It's actually not that bad currently. I mean, I, I walk all over the all over the community, and it's um, you know, it's not a bad place to walk in, although you, of course, don't want to walk on the, the major roads if you can avoid it. One of the most notable parts of this proposal is to increase the population of this region by about 50,000. How feasible do you think that'll be? You first of all need someone who actually wants to do that. The, the city is not actually building any housing in this. What they're doing is rezoning the shopping centers and a chunk of Serrano Mesa from commercial and industrial to a mixed use housing and industrial. It's feasible in the sense that if, in fact, the property owners and developers wanted to do what is in the plan, it could be done. Whether they'll actually want to do it or not remains to be seen. The, you know, the Serrano Mesa, for example, is a a big economic engine for the community in the city. And um, although a few developers have expressed some interest in building housing there, it's really the biotech industrial that is driving things over there at the moment. And they're, they're focusing on the industrial uses more than the residential uses. Another interesting aspect of this plan is the proposed construction of an aerial skyway. Uh, do you think that would solve any existing access problems that the area faces? It would solve some of the problems of people commuting into it, giving them an alternate way to do that. I think it's a nice concept. Um, It does require considerable money to do it, and whether that money will actually be available or not remains to be seen. It's in a Sandag plan, but um, there's no funding for it in in the foreseeable future. Now, you've said that this plan contains a lot of magical thinking. What do you mean by that? 
there are a lot of transit improvements in it that will require either a bond issue or a tax increase. You know, the Skyway is a good example, though I like the concept. It's not clear that the public is willing to pay for that. And there are a lot of other things also. As I said, there's a lot of hype about vibrant and pedestrian friendly and things like that, that, you know, if you actually look at what it does, don't quite live up to what's being said. The main issues we have with the plan are it's short on public facilities. It's short on on parkland. When we did the last community update in the late 1980s, we added a lot of parkland. We worked with developers to see what they wanted to build, and we estimated the future population quite accurately. And so because of all that, you know, we got a community plan that very closely matched what the development would actually be. And if you look at the community today and the community plan that was approved in 1992, they're very much the same. So I really don't have that feeling about this one. The housing is dependent on the landowners and developers doing something that's really the city's concept rather than than their concept. The public facilities have been uh, shortchanged. And so there are a lot of issues like that. Plus, the city has just changed the funding mechanism, whereas it, it used to be that developer fees that would be paid by development within the community would stay here and pay for building public facilities. But with the Parks Master Plan and the infrastructure plan that was approved last week, that's no longer the case. All the money that comes in from developer fees will go downtown and be used wherever the city decides to spend it. This plan highlights the disparities in modern-day urban planning versus what was prioritized in the past. What do you think are some of the biggest lessons that we've learned about urban planning since Mira Mesa was first developed? So there were a lot of problems in Mira Mesa to begin with. And when the community was first built, it was built um, without schools, without commercial. The developers just came out and they started building houses. But a lot of those problems were solved fairly early on. By the time I moved to Mira Mesa in 1980, the major schools had been built. A lot of the commercial development had come in in the community center. Some of the parks had been built. And then when we updated the community plan in the late 1980s, we were able to add more, more parks land and fix a lot of the remaining problems. So I think we actually have a, a good community today. We're, we're still growing through the new developments in Carroll Canyon, where the uh, gravel mining operations are being phased out, and we're building some 6,000 new housing units down there. We do have some issues. The traffic is too heavy now, and unfortunately, under the proposed plan, it would get get even worse. But in general, we have a good community. We have a good park system for the population that we have. We have outstanding schools, and and, most people who live here are very happy with it. I've been speaking with Jeff Stevens, chairman of the Mira Mesa Community Planning Group. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening. Travel and the way it grounded to a complete halt when the pandemic began was one of the most immediate changes we all saw in our lives. And yet, if you look at daily departures and arrivals right here in San Diego, you'll find that the surging number of summertime air passengers is matching figures not seen since late 2019. The high demand in the face of lingering COVID concerns spells out a clear point. People miss travel and they're not going to wait for the pandemic to end to do it. So what's changed then? Well, here with some reflections, advice, and perspective on travel in the age of COVID is one of the most recognizable voices on the subject, Rick Steves, author and host of Travel with Rick Steves. And Rick, welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me, Jade. 
So first things first, what went through your head when you first realized that world travel would be impossible for the foreseeable future? Well, that was in early 2020. And what went through my mind was we had 24,000 Americans signed up on Rick Steves bus tours for that summer. And we had to cancel those tours and refund all that money and break all those travel dreams. And it just was, it was heartbreaking. But I knew that no pandemic lasts forever. And uh, we kind of hunkered down and decided we're not going to be traveling for a while. And thank goodness now, and actually since, you know, since the beginning of this year, travel has sprung back with, with quite a vengeance. People are really easing back into travel at their own comfort levels. When did you feel it was right for you? I went in the fall of 2021. And, uh, you know, back then it just felt like there's two kinds of travelers, those who were vaccinated and those who were not. And if you're fully vaccinated and boosted and you just knew the bureaucratic hoops to go through, it felt to me that it was a very um, reasonable time to travel. On the other hand, I knew that for a lot of people, it was something they couldn't relax. Uh, and if you're if you're anxious about something, you should probably wait until things calm down. But people did start going back uh, late last year. I've been to Europe four times since then. I didn't travel at all for two years. I spent 100 days a year in Europe ever since I was a, a student. And so this is quite a change for me. But now we're all back to pretty much back to normal. And for me, the good news is that the vibrancy sort of in the streets, uh, the energy of Europe is back. If you're dreaming of a paseo in Spain or the passeggiato in Italy or licking a nice cream cone on the piazza in Florence, you've got it. If you want to go to a beer hall in Munich or clink glasses in a pub in Ireland, it's there. Uh, the question now is, are you comfortable taking the slight risk of um, getting COVID on the road? Or if you're not, do you want to wait until next year? I'm going to Europe next week. I'm going to be barging through Burgundy and then hiking through the Swiss Alps. And I can hardly wait. I'm being more careful than most. You know, I'm going to be wearing my mask when I'm indoors. I'm going to be avoiding unventilated and crowded places. Uh, but I'm going to be enjoying Europe like I have several times this year. Was there a single destination you were most eager to travel back to once countries started to reopen their borders? There was a, a, a particular energy I was looking for, Jade, and it wasn't a single country, but it was the energy. The thing I love about Europe is the energy in the streets, the vitality. And my concern when COVID hit was that all of the little entrepreneurial ventures, the, the labors of love, the mom and pop you know, guest houses and cafes and restaurants. I didn't think, I, th I thought they very well might not be able to survive two years of, of no tourism. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's what distinguishes uh, a Rick Steves guidebook is all of these cute little, little vibrant places where you have those intimate experiences with local people, not, not chain restaurants and high rise hotels, but little funky one-off places. And I, I went to Europe just this last couple of months to update my books with the, my other researchers. And I was afraid we were going to be raking away the corpses of all these dead businesses that I just knew and loved so much. And thankfully, they survived. Across the board, they survived. I was just, it's far better than what I expected. And these little mom and pops and these little, uh, little um, charming, you know, places where you can become a temporary European, they are just exuberant now. They've, they've gotten through the difficult times and they're booming and that vitality is there. So to answer your question, I want to go anywhere in Europe and I want to be out there in the streets and enjoying that vitality. And we can. Before we go, what's the single biggest piece of advice you would give to people who are planning an international vacation? Well, right now, I would say take seriously the congestion at the airports, be nimble, don't check a bag, 
carry on your bag. I, I never check a bag. Nine by 22 by 14 inches is my limit. That's what you can carry on to an airplane. Get to the airport a couple hours in advance. Uh, always book your connections with lots of time between the flights. When it comes to traveling around in Europe, remember now, as opposed to a few years ago, major sites generally require a timed entry. Do your homework. Find out when you go to a city, is it necessary to get my museum reservations in advance? I just updated the chapters for my guidebooks in the top 15 cities in Europe. I spent six weeks doing that. And uh, the beginning of each chapter now, I have a little sidebar that says, if you're going to Amsterdam, or if you're going to Vienna, if you're going to Venice, and you want to see this, that, or this, you need to get your reservations online in advance, pay for it with a timed admission, then you won't be frustrated. Then you'll walk right up to the turnstile and you'll step in. For years, when I went to Amsterdam, I would just walk by Anne Frank's house just for kicks to see how long the line was. It would be 200 yards long. Now, when you walk by Anne Frank's house, there's 20 or 30 people outside the door because they have a timed entry and every 20 minutes, 30 people go in or something like that. And the chaos is gone. It's more efficient, but we need to embrace that new sensibility about sightseeing. So don't um, don't be hesitant to make your um, reservations for the blockbuster sites in advance. And those are just the big sites. Most sites you can just walk right in. But, you know, this is the nature of uh, our travel these days. We all want to see the same things, usually at the same time. And if that's, uh, if that's you, you better make a reservation. <laughs> and you know, Rick, being able to travel is such a privilege and one that's really enlightening. What's the most important thing you've learned about humanity and yourself in all your travels? Well, I've written a book called Travel as a Political Act, and it's the book of all the 50 books I've written that I'm most proud of, and it's the book that I think has had the most impact. I, I just uh, produced a TV show called Why We Travel, and it aired all over the country on public television, and they both have the same theme. You know, the whole beauty of travel is getting out and getting to know our neighbors. We are 4% of this planet. We Americans, and there's 96% out there. And uh, I've spent 100 days a year since I was a kid, uh, you know, getting far away from home. And I realized that you need to broaden your perspective through travel. You know, there's uh, a lot of people try to avoid culture shock. To me, culture shock is a constructive thing. It's the growing pains of a broadening perspective. And these days here in the United States, there's a lot of fear in the most Frightened people are the people with no passports, the people who are afraid of what's out there. Uh, you know, the flip side of fear is understanding. You gain understanding when you travel. For me, travel is a really important act now more than ever. And uh, I like to go far away and I can look back at our country from a distance and learn more about it. And I can bring home that most beautiful souvenir, a broader perspective and an understanding that the world is filled with beautiful people. It's filled with joy and it's filled with love. And if you don't know that, then you're watching too much commercial television. I've been speaking with Rick Steves, author and host of Travel with Rick Steves. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and happy travels. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Born to indigenous working-class Mexican immigrants in San Diego in the 1970s, Jesse Leon's childhood was violently altered, changing the trajectory of his life. The systems in place meant to help 
failed him. Despite that, Leon's journey led him to the steps of Harvard, now creating change within the systems that once neglected him. He shares his story of resilience in a memoir called I'm Not Broken. Jesse, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you, Jade. I'm happy to be here. And I want to give a warning to our listeners. This interview includes descriptions of sexual violence. Your memoir starts with a dangerous encounter you had at a local gift shop when you were just 11 years old. Can you tell us about that experience and what it led to? Yeah. Um, When I was 11, I, without giving away the story in the book, but when I was 11, I was sexually abused. I walked into a gift shop in San Diego to purchase water balloons for a water balloon fight. All the kids put money together and they sent me, I was a nerdy one, the one that always got picked on and told what to do to go buy water balloons. First, I went to the local, I want to say it was Safeway at the time. They didn't have any. And so drove around, found this gift shop. And, um, I walked in and asked the person for water balloons. And then that led to a horrific, violent encounter. He told me that he he was busy attending to other people. And he told me that the water balloons were in the back storage room and to feel free to go back there and, um, and find them in a box. And next thing you know, when I went back there, there was a, the box was sealed and I turned back around to go tell him if I had permission to open the box and was punched and brutally sexually abused. And that um, led to three years of sexual abuse in the storage room of this gift shop. And eventually other people joining in um, and three years of sex trafficking. There were systems in place meant to help people experiencing what you did, but they didn't work. Uh, And I want you to tell me in what ways they failed. In Spanish, we don't have a word for molest. Molest in Spanish means molestar, which means to bother. So I'm trying to explain to my mom that I'm being molested and she wasn't getting it. And so finally, when I screamed at her that they were molesting me sexually, I saw the reaction and and, um, how, how horribly it impacted her. And then I was placed with a white therapist in downtown and she refused to hire an interpreter. Um, she was getting paid a lot of money at that time for our 45-minute sessions. And in spite of being in therapy with her from 14 to 18 years old, um, what many would consider the my you know saving grace, right? I they, the the state put me in a program, and and I. Uh, I went downhill. She knew about the sex work. She knew about the substance abuse. Um, She knew about me getting high, me partying, and did nothing. Never once recommended drug and alcohol treatment. Never once asked to meet with my mom 
my parents and in spite of my mom requesting family meetings, it was constantly shut down. And so when I talk about falling through the cracks and the system failing me, being overlooked by state state sanctioned programs that were intended to help victims of abuse, in spite of being in the supposed programs, I still spiraled into cycles of substance abuse, sex work, and um, suicidal ideations. I mean, you know, with with all of the the challenges uh, that you've experienced, you still you found yourself on the steps of Harvard University. Uh, I want to know how you got there. What empowered you to move your life in a different direction? I ended up weighing 135 pounds, strung out on crystal meth and heroin, sleeping under a bush in Balboa Park as a sex worker, hopping in and out of the cars of random men to support my drug habit. And that's where I ended up. And I was 18 years old. And so I hit bottom. I remember crying under a bush. I remember I was cleaning some leaves under this bush so I could rest my head and stop the noise in my head of just telling me to kill myself. And how did I end up here? And I remember thinking back, I was just an 11 year old kid who wanted to read National Geographic graphic magazines. I would get lost in encyclopedias. I would read dictionaries. I would have a dictionary next to me in case I didn't understand a word in an encyclopedia. And I would get lost in books. And I remember being under this bush in Bubble Park and just crying, looking up at the sky through the branches and asking God, why me? And, um, Luckily, I had somebody I was dating, and I had a girlfriend at the time, and she picked me up a few days later, and we had an argument about me being a drug addict, and she threw the yellow pages at me, and she said, you need to find help. I don't know where I had heard about Narcotics Anonymous, but I looked up Narcotics Anonymous in the yellow pages and found the NA hotline. And I called and someone picked up the phone and they told me where to go to my first meeting. And I didn't stay clean right away. I struggled my first month, but um, I eventually got clean and sober at 18 years old. And how I got to Harvard was one day at a time, practicing the principles of recovery, getting a sponsor, working steps, suiting up and showing up in spite of myself and allowing other people to love me. Eventually allowing other people to love me taught me that I was worthy of being loved. And I learned how to love myself again. And I started going to community college. And so then I ended up applying to UC Berkeley, uh, pretty much got a full ride. And so one day I applied. There's a lot that happened in between, so you'll have to get the book to read it. But I applied and I didn't want to apply to Harvard. And someone told me, she said, don't listen to the noise, Jesse. Just apply. The worst thing they could say is no. And I got into Harvard. And that um, changed my life forever. Hmm. 
And now you work as a social impact consultant, helping investors and foundations find ways to address issues of substance abuse, addiction, affordable housing, and mental health. I mean, you've really managed to um, take your trauma and use it to help others and institutions even. What advice would you give to someone struggling with what to do with their trauma? What I would tell my 14-year-old self, my 16-year-old self, even my 17-year-old self, is, hey, Jesse, don't give up. It's not going to be an easy road, but you're going to find your group. You're going to find folks just like you, and you will not be alone in your journey. And you're going to turn these scars and these experiences that you are going through and you're going to turn them around and create hope for others. And that you're not the only one. You're not broken. That hope is real. And there is a better way to live. I've been speaking with Jesse Leone, author of the memoir, I'm Not Broken. Jesse, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Jade. I really appreciate you taking the time and for KPBS Midday Edition for having me on here to be able to speak about my memoir, I'm Not Broken. Thank you. And Jesse Leone will be speaking on two panels at the Union Tribune Festival of Books this Saturday. The first is an English language panel entitled Memoirs on the Edge at 1030 a.m. The second in Spanish, Historias de Emigración, will be at 330 p.m. If you or someone you know is experiencing thoughts of suicide or a behavioral health crisis, the number to call is 988. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.